This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. There is growing alarm over the crisis in our emergency wards. And as you heard in Steve's news this morning, Catherine Hoy of the Ontario Nurses Association told the morning Zoom that the number of departments either closed or cut back is up to 25. The Liberals are looking for Health Minister Sylvia Jones, as are a lot of other people, but uh, she is nowhere to be seen. All of this as contract talks are set to get underway. And we'll check in on the Conservative leadership race. There's another debate set for tomorrow, but two of the remaining key players are not participating. The new leader will be announced on September 11th. Is it a done deal? What about the large number of signups in Quebec. And there are new allegations about taxpayer-funded hush money to cover sexual misconduct allegations uh, in Brampton on the city council there. The number is to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. And now, I'd like to welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario NDP MPP. Welcome, all of you. Thank you for being with us. Hi. Pleasure. All the best. Thank you. Hi, lady. Okay. Hi. Well, let's begin with the health crisis. And uh, why are we not seeing anything from the new health minister, Sylvia Jones, Lisa? Well, what is she going to say if she comes out, quite frankly? I mean, I understand that we want to hold people accountable, and you absolutely should. But the minister has limited powers in what she can do in the short term other than set up a a task force to look into it or appoint somebody to come out and look into it. Hiring take a long period of time, as we all know. And, you know, there's a lot of CEOs of hospitals out there. I'd like to hear from, quite frankly, how are you managing your hospitals? We're only hearing from, from the nurses union ringing the alarm bell. What do the Ontario hospital presidents have to say about it? And the board members, what do the board members have to say about it? You know, you don't go from nursing all the way to the Department of Health and the Minister of Health in terms of looking for solutions to an obviously extremely problematic issue. And I can tell you that I'm frustrated personally. As you guys know, my husband's in long-term care, and there was uh, there was an evening this week when there was no nurse that could come in for an evening shift at on my husband's floor, which meant the patients couldn't get their medications. How crazy is that? So yeah, there is an urgency here, but Talking about whether or not Sylvia Jones is available isn't the only issue. The issue is everybody in this chain has to wake up and snap out of it and start moving together. Uh, Charles Souza, uh, does this have anything to do with the fact that uh, the contract negotiations uh, are coming right up this month if they haven't already started? Yeah, I would say that's very much the case, and Sylvia probably doesn't want to implicate herself by saying things untoward, and they're in the sensitive time of into those contract negotiations. The nurses' union are up, you know, they're, they're rightly upset as to what's happening with Bill 124, wage freezes, they're concerned about long hours, staffing shortages, the poor working conditions, redeployment of people. There's a lot of requests for greater solutions, you know, I mean, they're asking for they're not really asking for internationally trained nurses to be expedited more quickly. They want their, their own existing members to be, to get more incentives and they want better recruitment. But all that to say, and I think, uh, and Lisa brings up a good point, there, there's a lot of people in part, in, in, in you know, involved in this uh, issue in terms of, you know, improving hospital care, improving the wait times. I mean, 
it's bad enough during peak periods when it was just a flu. But we have these long weekends that just happened. We are at a critical point. Emergency rooms and intensive care units are under stress. There's a long-term problem here that has to be resolved. And it's not just funding from the feds. They have to do a better delivery. Something has to happen in a much better, improved way. Sylvia Jones knows all that's going to come at her quickly. And she wants to be mindful, I suspect, of how, how she now communicates it going forward. Okay, well, I mean, that's her side of it. But I'm wondering, are nurses more likely to be taking action now that their contract talks are underway? Sherry? Yes, well, I, I beg to differ with my two other co-panelists here, Libby. Uh, first of all, in Ontario, we spend less per capita per patient than any other province. Uh, Bill 124, which you heard in the news, caps nurses' salaries essentially at less than inflation. So actually, they're taking a drop in income. And these are, you know, predominantly women who have worked, uh, some of them 16-hour shifts we're hearing all during COVID, thousands of healthcare workers, not just nurses, EMT, long-term care are off with COVID and have been. Um, they've been risking their lives and their families' lives for us. Uh, and um, they've, they get the cold shoulder from this government. I mean, this government has not stepped up, not even spoken to them. Yes, um, you know, healthcare has seen challenges around the world, uh, but here's some very uh, clear uh, actions that could be taken. First of all, um, Sylvia Jones could meet you know, with uh, with people in the healthcare field. She could, um, you know, and, and before her, you know, Doug Ford should be and should be meeting, um, should have and should be meeting with, with folk who are, are movers and shakers in the field. Um, but I mean, it, it, you know, we have nurses leaving. Um, they're burnt out and who can blame them? ERs are closing. I mean, 13 closures of ER departments in July, 20 closures of acute care in just this last weekend. And even the ER in Jones' own riding has been closed, and there was no comment on that. I mean, if again, if you're taking your loved one, if your loved one's in long-term care, and many of my congregants are, um, or if you're visiting someone or somebody has a crisis, um, this is what they're looking at, and this is not Okay. Well, nobody's nobody is suggesting nobody is suggesting uh, that it's okay. Uh, Lisa, again, I mean, there's no question that nurses deserve a better deal than they're getting. And if memory serves, Doug Ford, the last thing he said, hey, everything is negotiable in the contract talks. But do you think there might be a connection with these crises and the contract talks? Let me let me flip it on its head and say it this way, Libby. If I thought giving nurses a million dollars each next week instantaneously would solve the wait times and the closure of the ERs, I would be surprised. I don't think there is a linkage. I think it's a it's a it's a good. It's, I don't want to say opportunity because that implies that I believe people are being opportunistic, and I don't believe they are. I think they're putting forth their position rightfully. But I think that just like in a supply chain. Um, it's not the the individuals. It's the entire system that has problems and difficulties. The the wait times and the closures of the ER is is a symptom or the outcome of many different problems. One of which could be the fact that the Ontario nurses deserve to have more money. And you know, I mean, sure, absolutely, it should be on the table, and they should be negotiating it. I'm sure they're going to negotiate it. But if you think that's the only problem. I think you are absolutely incorrect. It's not the only problem. There's lots of stuff that has to that has to change. And giving um, a fair contract to the nurses is not going to solve the problems instantaneously. No, it, it's uh, hard to imagine what might. Uh, Charles, do you agree with Lisa that it's time for us to hear from uh, the hospital administrators? Uh, dare I say, hospital administrators who make a lot of money. Absolutely. I mean, this is not just nurses' issue. I mean, yeah, they're under they're they're, um, they're enduring poor working conditions, and they are being burnt out. And I and I care about them as much as Sherry and Lisa and all of us do. Problem is, how do we now improve it going forward? And are the administrators and all those that are the the brains behind the operations of hospital care doing their job effectively? Because it's not happening. And it's not a question of money. It's a question of process, a question of 
procedures, a question of alternatives by which to facilitate the care that's required. People needing knee operations and, and other issues are not getting the care either. More bricks and mortar into the system is a great idea, but if we can't staff them, if we can't get nurses, if we can't get the ability to work in those, in those environments, then nothing's going to happen. And we have a shortage. We have a recruitment problem. We have a, a problem with the way we deliver our services in an effective way. And I, didn't know, I don't have the answers. We all know the problems. We can all complain about it. We need solutions to get past mm-hmm. this critical point. Is, is uh, the Ford government going to sustain any damage because of this? Um, I think they should, because frankly, you know, in every government, mine included, we all had the responsibility to improve it. And we all, we all struggled with what was best home care, alternative cares, other ways by which to provide services, ambulatory care, uh, increasing hospitals and new hospitals that were built. And yet here we are suffering still. And, uh, yeah, I think the Ford government said they would do, they were out there, you know, hang, you know, they were giving bonuses to nurses at election time. Well, that's not the issue. That's not the, that's not, how, that's not, not going to resolve the matter. What's going to resolve the matter is further. We need more respect. We need more understanding. We need more communications, and we need more um, honesty on all sides. Mm-hmm. Right? We have we have never fired yeah. nurses. Nurses have been increasing in size. They've been de- they've been deployed in different sections. So we need we need to have greater understanding how and where these individuals should be best served, <laughs> where we should be uh, expecting. From them too, because there's expectations at emergency care that shouldn't be there. We shouldn't have people going into emergency rooms. Uh, let us turn to the conservative leadership race. Uh, Sherry, does it look to you like it's a done deal? We have this additional debate tomorrow. Uh, the, the front runner, Pierre Poilievre, is not speaking there. Leslin Lewis is not speaking there. Patrick Brown is gone. Uh, what's the point? Um, well, I think uh, Poliev is going to win this. I think that's a done deal. Um, uh, and uh, and certainly, um, I think progressives have been taken out of the federal conservative name for a reason. Uh, I think we should be very concerned if we are progressives in this country about that fact, that he's going to win. And uh, particularly concerned about the fact that the conservatives are rising in the polls, even leaderless. Uh, in the House of Commons. Again, um, this is a man who voted against same-sex marriage with his dad uh, in a same-sex union sitting in the gallery. This is a man who's opposed vaccine mandates, who's uh, definitely in the pocket. Uh, it's uh, a big oil and gas. We don't hear about a carbon tax. He wants to get rid of that. We don't hear about renewables from him. And this is somebody who championed Bitcoin. I mean, uh, you know, blames inflation on Trudeau, and we know it's an international problem, and spending, um, of course, federally, which is a, you know, a drum that, that, uh, regressive conservatives tend to beat. Um, think about, uh, think, I mean, think about COVID without CERB. We would have a lot more people living in, in tents and parks. So it's, uh, I think this is not good news for Canada that we have Republicans North coming into power in the Conservative Party. Um, but yes, I do think it's a done deal, sadly. Uh, Lisa, do you agree? Is it a done deal? And uh, there are also a lot of people who say, hey, uh, Poilievre might be uh, saying and doing all this stuff to win, but he's actually he's a career politician who's never held mm-hmm. another job. So everybody thought it was a done deal for Peter McKay. Everybody yeah. thought it was a done deal for Maxime Bernier. And look what happened, right? It, it matters how the vote is spread across the country. 338 different areas in which you have to win each individual election. And that's why there's a lot of effort being put into right now, making sure that the people you've identified who bought your memberships actually vote and vote for you. So there's a lot of effort. That's probably why, um, That's prob- I think that's the reason why Pierre Polyev's campaign indicated that he's not going to be attending the debate because they're focused on getting out the vote. More problematic for me was Leslie Lewis's team saying that unless you talk about these five topics, we're not showing up. And I thought that was ludicrous. Um, you don't dictate what questions are, are going to be asked of the, the contestants at all. That I've never seen the like of it, and I thought it was a very bizarre way to approach debate. I'm disappointed that they're not taking part because there's a lot of conservatives who are looking at their ballot. My dad is one of them, and he's going to watch the debate tomorrow night, and there's going to be two people who aren't there who may suffer as a result because he uh, he's not going to hear from them. So they'll pay the fines, um, 
and there is going to be hard feelings about it. And we'll see who wins on September 10th. But I wouldn't count all the chickens before they're hatched. There's weird things can happen in this system. Uh, well, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting. There, there are more people upset with the Trudeau government. We've talked about this before. Uh, you know, the government seems to be having lots of problems delivering very basic services. But, and, and there seems to be this thing out there about, uh, Poilie Avril's, you know, people saying, oh, he could never get elected. I mean, frankly, I, I doubt that. I mean, Charles, how uh, would you say, how good is this for the Trudeau government that that a lot of people are worried about Poiliev? Um, I think in regards to the Trudeau government, they should be taking notice of the fact there's a lot of excitement in this leadership race. There's a lot of momentum. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of talk about gatekeepers <laughs> all the time. And, uh, and the issues that we're having with nursing in Ontario is... is problematic in all sectors of the economy. There's, and that's happening in the federal government. They can't get staff, a lot of shortages, and a lot of inadequate services being had, and people are upset. Certainly Pierre Pelliev is taking advantage of that, and every video he does, he talks about it. But to Lisa's point, there is a point system across the country, and we have a lot of members that have been signed up in Quebec and in Ontario. Uh, the points will still give, I suspect, Alberta and the Prairies greater opportunity for Pelliev, but in the end... They should take notice that people are not happy, and uh, this this conservative leadership brings it to light. And who knows if Charest will be able to win now? I mean, Harper's endorsement is a great uh, plug for Pellier. The Browns' fallout may help Charest. Don't know. And this notion that Charest can lead the country, and as opposed to Pellier, again, I. I I don't know how people are going to react. Uh, I uh, I just know that they have a lot of excitement, and that should uh, be we should take stock in that if we're liberals. Now, the, the, all of this surge in membership in Quebec, uh, Lisa, what's what's that about? I I heard a commentator this morning saying that they're actually people who want Poilievre and not Charest because he's from Quebec. So, what do you know about that surge in Quebec? You, you know what? You're beholden to the campaign teams to tell you who bought the the actual memberships. So you have to. One side is going to say we we have 85 percent of those votes, and the other side is going to say we sold more memberships. And we talk about it being a big surge. It's it's not a lot of votes. I mean, it's it is. Uh, if you look at what the baseline was, it's a big increase for sure. But there are far more people voting across the country um in this in this uh conservative election than there will be in, in Quebec. That being said, um there's a significant number of ridings and as a result there's gonna be competitive races in each one of these individual riding associations and it's gonna be important to see who has the stronger ground game in Quebec. It will come down to Quebec. Do you know the actual numbers? I I believe from what I report from what I saw, I think we started at twenty five thousand voters in all of in all of Quebec, and it's up around fifty four thousand voters in Quebec. So you can see, I mean, there's there's ridings, I'm sure, out in Alberta, which have fifty four thousand voters themselves, let alone in the entire province. But their fifty four thousand votes do hold a lot of weight because I think there's seventy seven riding associations in there, and that's significant. Hmm. It's interesting, anyway. See what's mm-hmm. going on in Quebec, uh, Sherry DeNovo, Do you have a view? Uh, well, uh, first of all, just uh, to Lisa's point, to um, uh, certainly I agree. And anybody who's gone through, uh, a, you know, a, a nomination <laughs> fight or any internal, uh, you know, leadership contestant uh, fight will know that the numbers tend to get a little wonky. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, are these, you know, members who will stick around um, for, you know, for even the vote? Um, and certainly doesn't necessarily translate into voters in the next federal election. Mm-hmm. But having said that, um, I think the wave is Polyev's, and I think um, that's clear. Uh, and again, I think that if we are progressives in Canada, whether liberal or NDP or green or anybody else, uh, or even red Tories, of which there are still some, um, I think we should be concerned. I'm going to take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Well, um, I read Warren Kinsella. I give him a lot of respect. And he wrote a story in the Sun called Winning. 
And that's what in politics, it's all about winning. And the bottom line is, I think I've said it before in Patrick Brown, uh, Paul Yelp can win the conservative nomination. But the point is, can he actually win enough voters across the country? Yes, Alberta, Saskatchewan, but um, actually in Quebec, um, in the urban centers of Ontario and B.C., I think um, my brilliant son said it best, you know, who's best placed is the NDP could come up um, alongside the Liberals in the next federal election. Hmm. An interesting theory, Ron. Thanks for that. Uh, I think, uh, you know, that is the conventional wisdom. He can't win. I, I think uh, it would be foolish to count him out, yeah. count anything out at this point. Canadians don't elect governments. They vote them out, Libby. Yeah, and it's time. It is more than time. This so one is... I wh- wouldn't be... Yeah, I wouldn't be so... If I were a liberal, I wouldn't be resting on my laurels on that one. And I just point out one other thing. Polyev is a French name. And yeah. you may have people wandering into the voting booth in a general election in Quebec who really know nothing about politics, and that's fine. And they'll see a Trude- They'll see a French name other than Trudeau's, and they'll give them the vote. Well, he's uh, he's... Uh, francophone, anglophone, grew up in Calgary, I think. Mm-hmm. But his, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, he's, he speaks French perfect. Well, yeah. it's perfect by my standards. Perfect I think I've heard me. people trashing it. <laughs> no, it's good for me. Much better than mine. Much better than mine as well. Uh, we have a few minutes left and there was this, uh, another bizarre, uh, set of allegations, revelations in Brampton. Mayor Patrick Brown held a news conference saying they've uncovered evidence of a taxpayer-funded hush money uh, of about $60,000 to cover up these uh, sexual misconduct allegations against Councillor Dillon there, and the woman signed a non-disclosure agreement, and that's why we don't know about it. Um, I mean... There's so much dirt uh, in that city hall, but what do you make of that, Sherry? Uh, well, I worked with Patrick Brown briefly when he was, you know, leader of the uh, official opposition at Queen's Park, and um, and read his book Takedown. Um, highly recommend it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this this man has been the subject himself of um, you know some strange actions within his own party. Uh, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Um, he's certainly, one thing you can say about Patrick Brown, he's not out of the news. And, uh, so, so who knows what the truth is here? I suspect that there is some. Um, and, uh, but what, one thing for sure, it will give Patrick Brown more airtime. So I'll leave it at that. Okay. Charles, what, what do you make of that? Well, there's a divided council, and he's having some infights uh, that's been going on for over a year now. Uh, this is, I guess, another opportunity for him to get in front of the camera, talk about the, you know, the the the, the inappropriate behavior of certain people in the council. Um, I I don't know the circumstances, and, uh, and and to your point, you know, there there's some sensitivities here, but yeah, he um, that that council that Brampton's been under issues of corruption for multiple years now and just yet another chapter in this big book of theirs but uh i i i i sherry like sherry i I worked alongside patrick brown or at least across the halls from him or across the the aisle and uh, he doesn't quit the guy doesn't quit and he will do what's necessary to make himself seen as someone who is there for you and is fighting for you and recognizing that he's been a victim and this is yet another part of that uh, Lisa, I mean, he had a couple of women, the only women councillor uh, now on Brampton City Councillor, another woman as well. Uh, talking about this, I mean, uh, you know, on the face of it, it's it's an allegation that really boggles the mind. I mean, and uh, I'm, I mean, it's hard to imagine that they would go public with this without some evidence. But yeah, you know, here, oh, so Libby, I have so many thoughts on this topic. Um, and here it is in a nutshell for me. If a woman's been sexually assaulted, if a woman's been sexually harassed, she has two options. She can go and tell her employer and deal with it in that way if you're sexually harassed. If you don't get um, what you think is appropriate in terms of response, you can sue. And you have every right to sue. And it's not dirty money and it's not hush money. It is what is absolutely is 
due and owing to somebody who goes through that experience. Whether or not she wants to put forward her name is up to her, but it does come down to if you're using taxpayer dollars in order to pay off an allegation or a lawsuit to avoid going to court, then that should be made public. But to say that it's dirty money or hush money kind of implies that the woman doesn't deserve it, and she does. She absolutely does. But the uh, you're saying that given that it was taf- it, taxpayer money, uh, it, it sh- there shouldn't have been an NDA attached to it. I believe that if the woman wants to keep her name quiet, she can. But I also believe that if it's an elected official that we're protecting, that gets published. Hmm. And I know it sounds like I'm cutting... I'm cutting it down the middle, but I got to tell you, it's, uh, it is not easy for women to come forward and indicate that they've been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. Can I point to Hockey Canada at this point wow. and just show that, right? So if they can't come forward because even if they get compensated, they're going to get dragged through the mud, I think an NDA for them is fine. But if it's an elected official, then, you know, name them. You can't buy silence. That's a, that's a very interesting thought, Sherry. Uh, we only have a few seconds left, but you being the other woman on the panel, what do you think of that? Oh, well, absolutely. I agree with Lisa that, you know, the first person uh, that we should all be thinking about is the victim here and what's best and what's in her best interest. Um, and and also, of course, that if it's a city official and these are tax dollars at play here, that's something that needs to be uncovered. So, um, so yes, uh, victim first always. Mm-hmm. Okay. For the last 30 seconds, Charles, what are you looking at for the week ahead? Um, well, I'm still trying to build a long-term care home and trying to facilitate the services that are needed in our community for not-for-profit. And it's a challenge. It's a challenge with getting staffing, supplies, initiatives, uh, government supports, all of it has to coincide. It's not an easy task, but I do appreciate the work of many who are volunteering to help. Okay. On that note, let's hope that all those problems in our health care system uh, at least get a little better over the next week. Thank you so much, Sherry DeNovo, Lisa Raitt, and Charles Souza. I really appreciate it. All the best. Thanks, Good to hear guys. from you, Sherry. Bye, Lisa. Bye. Bye. Okay. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, very dramatic news yesterday. A drone strike killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is was the leader of Al-Qaeda. Is the world a safer place? How did it take place? We'll have all of it when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Justice has been delivered. With those words, U.S. President Joe Biden announced the killing of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a drone attack in Kabul. None of the terror kingpin's family was harmed in the attack. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the world is a safer place because of this assassination. Is it? And U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has touched down in Taiwan despite threats from Beijing of serious consequences. She's the highest ranking American official to visit the self-ruled island claimed by China in 25 years. What do you think? Is that a strong message or an unnecessary provocation and risk. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Dr. Janice Sine, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, and Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and a former Senior Strategic Terrorism Analyst at CSIS. Thank you both for joining us. Hello. Hello. So, Janice, um, were you surprised by this news? And in your view, is the world a safer place? I was surprised by the news, Libby, only in the sense that um, when something like this happens, under what conditions it happens, is a surprise. Was I surprised that he was very high up on the target list? No. Is the world a safer place? The evidence, I think, is compelling that over the years, 
leaders are replaced. There is a period of competition inside the organization. Sometimes it splinters, but taking out what is called a high-value target in plain English, a prominent intellectual leader of this organization does not mean the end of the organization. And uh, uh, Phil, what about the organization? I mean, uh, Al-Qaeda, I mean, he was kind of under the radar, uh, from my understanding, whatever cells were operating were doing so independently of the leadership. Yes and no. And I would agree with Janice Libby. I mean, um, you know, I've always said a dead terrorist is a good terrorist. I have no problems with that. Um, but, you know, as Janice said, this doesn't mean the end of Al-Qaeda any more than the killing of bin Laden back in 2011 meant the end of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has been there for the better part of 30, 40 years now. It may not be at the top of the list in terms of people's minds as much as it was during 9-11. But, you know, they're still active in Afghanistan now that the Taliban are in power. And by the way, Libby, the Taliban have a lot to answer for, for al-Zawahiri being found in the capital city under their property protection. But, you know, they're strong in Afghanistan. They've got affiliates across the world. We've got affiliates in Africa that are carrying out terrorist attacks on a daily basis. So, no, I, I don't think this necessarily debilitates the organization. I always thought that, that El-Zawakhiri didn't, couldn't hold a match to bin Laden in terms of personality, in terms of charisma. But the fact that he's dead is good. But, no, I, I think we should really check our analyses and not say that the, you know, the, the gig is up now that uh, El-Zawakhiri has been killed. As Janice said, there's someone waiting in the wings. There'll be a bit of a competition. Will he be as good as El-Zawakhiri, as good as bin Laden? Time will tell but the organization is still very vibrant and still very capable of carrying out terrorism around the world. Okay, speaking of the Taliban, uh, it's it's been reported that this violated an agreement that the Americans had with the Taliban, but but who who relies on agreements with the Taliban, Janice? Well, actually, <laughs> um, you know, we, we don't negotiate with our friends, uh, Libby. We negotiate with our adversaries, and as long as it's their interest to do so, um, they, they honor agreements. What's interesting about this story, uh, is that he apparently, Stawahari, who played a leading intellectual role, um, in, in Al Qaeda far more than bin Laden did. He was a, a charismatic leader, but he was also a, an operator, uh, somebody who had executive responsibilities. He is in Afghanistan, apparently, through the Al Haqqani network. Mm. The Al Haqqani network <laughs> has at times been deeply at odds with the Taliban and fought the Taliban, then stitched themselves back in. So what we're really seeing here from everything we know, uh, is that it is uh, a faction of the Taliban which had, had independent mm-hmm. existence as well that play host uh, to Zawahiri. So I think we have to be careful here uh, to say that we're going to hold the Taliban accountable uh, for this. We've walked down this road before and we didn't walk it very successfully. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, uh, you know, uh, how how much can you rely on any agreement with any a terrorist well, state or a terrorist uh, uh, faction? And and Phil, is it possible that he, if there were disagreements, is it possible he was given up by one of those people? Oh, it's always possible, Libby. I suppose. But further to Janice's point, I mean, the Taliban is still a listed terrorist entity in Canada, United States. We you deal with the devil you have. Unfortunately, I think as Janice noted in her comments. But they still are a terrorist group. This notion of Taliban 2.0 that people were talking about a year ago when they took over Afghanistan is all just garbage. They're still the terrorists <laughs> yeah. they always were. There are factions. Um, you know, maybe there are people you can talk to. But I, I had to laugh, Libby, when when I, the Taliban official said this is a violation of the Doha Accords. <laughs> I'm pretty sure um, part of the Accords was you wouldn't be hosting terrorist groups. And so for the leader of one of the world's most heinous terrorist groups to be found in an apartment in Kabul, I think that violates the accords as well. So, um, look, the Taliban are there. Uh, they took over in, in a heartbeat when the Americans left last August. They're going to be there for a while. Yes, we have to deal with them. But I wouldn't, you know, take the word of a Taliban official, you know, further like a throw it kind of thing. I think they've shown their true colors. They've, they've closed girls' schools again. They're firing women from jobs. The Taliban is not Taliban 2.0, Libby. The Taliban is Taliban 1.0, and they've been there for 35 years. Oh, I, I agree entirely with that. Um, I never thought there was Taliban 2.0. But there is a bigger picture here that the United States and Canada and other allies spent 20 years uh, 
mm-hmm. um, in Afghanistan. And let's be candid here. We failed. We did yep. not succeed. Sure. Okay? And so it's that context that really matters when we think about what we do next um, when the Taliban uh, breaks uh, the agreement. We don't want to relive history and relive and repeat mistakes. Well, uh, my next question was, uh, is this a big win for the United States, for Joe Biden? It's uh, the first thing since they folded their tents and uh, scrambled out of there. Well, it's a win and it's not a win. It's not a win because, as we've just said, the Taliban violated the agreement. And even when bin Laden was assassinated, Obama got a bump in the polls, but it did yep. not last. Okay. Yep. It is a win because um, the U.S. administration said we have over the horizon mm-hmm. uh, abilities to take out um, people that who threaten our interests, even after we withdraw our forces on the ground. That was a very contested statement at the time it was made. But wow, <laughs> a Hellfire missile went mm-hmm. in. And took out uh, somebody who was standing on a balcony mm-hmm. with no collateral damage. That is not a small accomplishment. Fantastic, uh, I say. I would agree with Janice on that one. And, and you know, it, it is a bump because look, look at Biden's numbers are in the in the dumps. He's not a yeah. popular president. He's suffering right now. Anytime this happens, you're going to see the chance of USA, 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 and Lafayette Park across from the White House. And yeah, like I said, let's celebrate the death of a terrorist because he can't threaten us anymore. So it'll definitely be, it's a good news story, but I agree with everything that Janet said. Let's not you know, look at this as uh, the ultimate victory. And for heaven's sakes, not like, if something bad were to happen tomorrow, like a major attack, let's not look at go, about going back in. As Janet said, we were there for 20 years and didn't accomplish very much, to be perfectly honest. And going back in, I think, should not be, uh, you know, plan A moving forward. Okay, we've got to take another break. Everybody hold on. Uh, When we'll come back, we'll continue this conversation and also talk about Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, uh, because there's talk of uh, threats coming from the direction of China. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am on the line with Professor Janice Stein and Phil Gursky. We've been talking about the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, but there is another big international story uh, with potential threat going on, and that is Nancy Pelosi, the U.S. Speaker's visit to Taiwan. The Chinese have been making very belligerent noises about that. Uh, uh, Janice, what do you what do you make of it? Well, I'm going to say something controversial right now. Oh, good. (laughs) I do not think she should have gone now. Uh, why? Because a party congress is coming up in Beijing. There is domestic politics in China, just like there are domestic politics everywhere else. The president, in everything but direct words, asked her not to go. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs said this is not a good idea. The CIA suggested politely that she not go. This is a delicate time in China with a president who's under huge domestic pressure because of the way he has handled COVID and the economic slowdown. Frankly, dumb risk to take. Phil, do you agree? Yes and no. Uh, I want to caution my statements, uh, Libby. I, I'm not a China specialist. I didn't yeah. work China at CSIS. I have colleagues who did. But I'm going to go a little bit against Jan. I recognize what you said. And, you know, for me, when intelligence says no, they probably have information suggesting it's not a good idea. Yeah. On the other hand, China's being a bully. Look, Taiwan's an independent nation, and they have every right to invite whomever they want to their country. If we start, you know, we've been giving it to China for 20, 30 years now. And look, you know, China's not our friend. They've been spying here in Canada, stealing our technology. What's next? So they say you can't go to Taiwan. What's next? You can't go in the South China Sea, which they claim is their territorial waters. You can't complain about Xinjiang province, where a million Uyghurs are being held in captivity in so-called re-education camps. I think it's 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 chutzpah on the part of Pelosi. It's dangerous, yes, but when you're dealing with a bully, you have to stand up to them. And China's been a bully for the better part of a long time, and they're, they're, they're getting away with it. And it's time to start pushing back, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but to take your time, and this is really I, know, I agree, Janice. I agree, yeah. 
But, but Janice, what I've been hearing lately is that uh, people are kind of, uh, I, preparing is perhaps the wrong word, but the, you know, everybody's waiting for China basically to invade Taiwan and, yeah. and take it by force. Yeah, Libby, I think that's um, really a, a dramatic over-exaggeration. Um, people, um, uh, experts are really divided. They're divided about what lessons Xi Jinping draws from what happened to Russia in Ukraine. Um, there's a consensus that China is not confident. It's a very complicated thing to, to cross the straits and invade, that it is not confident about its military capability to do so yet. Um, its army has not fought a war in 30 years, uh, and that no, there's absolutely no evidence, um, again, listening to the experts inside and outside of government, that there any decision whatsoever has been made. That's why don't provoke at a time of maximum domestic vulnerability. Hmm. Uh, I mean, so, Phil, uh, do you think that what Nancy, I mean, she's, uh, I mean, she's, she has defied, uh, you know, the yeah. president and all those other authorities. So why is she doing it? Just she wants to stand up to the bully. She's perhaps at the end of her career. Like, how do you see that? Well, it's too bad you can't have Nancy on your program. Maybe to ask her directly. I, I don't know. I mean, there could be all kinds of reasons. There could be domestic politics for her as well. Look at I yeah. stepped to the Chinese bully, you know, and I'm, I want to make a name for myself. You know, times are always sensitive, and they've been sensitive for years with China. With some of the issues I talked about, the South China Sea, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Tibet, etc. My con- my concern would be okay. Maybe it's a it's a difficult time now, and it's you know we're sort of on a on a tightrope in terms of international relations, but. When have we never been there? I mean, is it going to get more sensitive or less sensitive tomorrow? In other words, if a year from now someone go to Taiwan, well, it's not the time's not ready to go to Taiwan. It's, you know, things are bad. Two years from now, three years from now, I, I just think that sometimes you've got to take a stand on principled reasons. As I said, Taiwan is an independent nation, Chinese contentions notwithstanding, and I think it can do whatever the hell it wants with, with, with its foreign policy. So, yes, there are risks inherent, but there's risk inherent in getting up in the morning, Libby. And I think that you know you pick your times, and hopefully you pick them well. I think it's a lot of bluster on the part of China. They have to say this because they see Taiwan as a, you know, a breakaway state that really is Chinese territory. I'd be surprised if anything comes, comes out of China for the reasons that Janet said as well. I don't think they're ready for it. I don't, and I think we, we'll have to call their bluff on this one and see what happens. Hmm. Uh, Janice, what, what could a bad outcome be or a good outcome be on this? Well, you know, it's a bad one. It's not hard to imagine. Uh, Frankly, that Xi Jinping wants to provoke an all-out war with the United States right right now, uh, but he could send you know a, a series of uh, fighter aircraft over the Taiwan Strait into the direct airspace of Taiwan. That's one possibility. There could be missiles and exercises, and he, the worry is always that when forces are contiguous, um, you have an accident, a miscalculation. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a real possibility. That's what we've been worrying about ever since February with respect to Russian forces, too. There's a different game between the great nuclear powers, and you have to be more cautious um, than you are under other circumstances. In fact, that may not be nice. It may not be what we like. It may not be fair. It may not be just, but it's a fact. And I think that's a big risk here. The best outcome, um, the Chinese say a lot do something um, that they carefully script and control so there's no risk um, of an accident. And in fact, not a great deal is achieved by this visit because Nancy Pelosi's going doesn't change any of the dynamics that we've been talking about, frankly. Mm-hmm. We're not standing up to a bully. Um, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about this internal pressure that Xi Jinping is facing. I mean, he's a... Uh, you know, he's an authoritarian ruler. Uh, yeah. What can happen to him as a result? Well, um, we, we, in every, even in the most authoritarian countries, there are dissatisfied members of the party. There are grumblers. 
There is growing concern. You again, if you monitor the result, the reports of social media in China as a result of these draconian lockdowns, um, which one are actually cutting into people's. And this is a funny word. Let me use the word personal space rather than personal freedom. But they did think people thought that inside their apartments um, they were unconstrained. That's not the case. There's probably the highest level of political discontent in China right now uh, since Tiananmen Square. Now, that spills over into party members. There's a Congress. And what's at stake for Xi Jinping is not whether he is confirmed for a third term, but how much control he will get from that Congress with respect to naming members of the Central Committee uh, and the Politburo. Will it be his people that he's able to put on those committees? Um, if there's a lot of grumbling, he will be more constrained than he otherwise would be. And, and giving an inch on Taiwan cuts across every faction um, within China. Uh, turning to uh, another very upsetting development, uh, the military junta uh, in Myanmar executed four democracy activists. Uh, what does that signal? This is a really brutal um, regime. Um, we've seen it in the, in the treatment of Rohingya. We've seen it in the way they've dealt um, with the deposed president. Um, it's on a list of very brutal regimes, frankly, um, that are more rather than less common in the world that we live in. And there's very, very little that outsiders, especially in the West, can do um, to influence their internal decision-making. It's, it's tragic um, to hear about this. Phil, do you have a view? Uh, I did follow Myanmar a little bit um, for the reasons that Janice cited. That you know the um, the Rohingya in the in the northwestern part of the country. There actually was a, a an Islamist terrorist group that was carrying out attacks in Myanmar. Yeah. But Janice is right. I mean, this is a brutal regime, and I, I think what it says to us as Canadians is that we recognize how brutal they are. We want to do something, but we are limited in what we can and cannot do. And I think that you know we've struggled over the years to, to figure out what's our best policy. Do we, do we go all out like we did in Afghanistan in 2001 and send Canadian sources, soldiers to actually, you know, station there and, and occupy and overthrow regimes? Well, of course, that's not, that's not part of the conversation in Myanmar, but, you know, it, it really begs the question, what are effective measures that can be taken against, as Janice said, a very, very brutal regime that doesn't think twice about killing its own citizens? And there are many ethnic groups fighting in Myanmar right now. The government seems that the Bama are the, are the majority, but there's many, there's dozens of ethnic groups that are fighting for autonomy and fairness in, the, in their society. And it's, it's not clear for me, and I'm anything but a Myanmar specialist, Libby, about what we can do to stop these kinds of brutal killings of from Myanmar citizens. It's, it's an unfortunate reality of, of the world in 2022. There are despotic regimes, sometimes run by the military, that do nasty things, and the options on the table for the rest of the world are extremely limited. Uh, speaking of the state of the world in 2022, just uh, taking a look at where we're at in terms of the Ukraine war, I, my feeling is that everybody is kind of accepted, say, hey, this is this is going to be a long war. Uh, and, uh, you know, the West is just kind of, I mean, we're continuing to offer material support to Ukraine, but it's it's kind of uh, everybody's used to it. So let me let me give every well let's talk about a piece of good news on a on a really tough day. Uh, a Ukrainian ship loaded with grain mm -hmm. yeah. navigated itself, navigated through the landmine areas, is on its way now to Istanbul where it will be inspected. Here's a really interesting example. Um, an agreement was brokered by the president of Turkey, not on many people's good guy list, <laughs> with Russia. <laughs> not on president. mine. Not on your good guy list, okay. And he did it with President Putin, not on anybody's good guy list, I'm sure, right now. Uh, you know, the UN MIA in this whole process was actually instrumental in getting this agreement done. And Russia honored the agreement didn't attack the ship. So 
the you know the judgment who trusts the adversary to do something. Well, you could argue this is in Russia's interest, overwhelmingly in Russia's interest, because it's going to be able to export fertilizer it's and limit, great, yeah. yeah, and limit the damage that's being done to its reputation in parts of Africa as a result of the soaring price of wheat. But it, it is a cautionary note that there is always space for communication that. I, what, what we would call deconflicting, trying to reduce the possibility of accident and miscalculation and unintended conflict is always valuable. And that's especially true with nuclear states. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I think further too, Olivia, I think that, you know, um, as, as somebody who is third generation Ukrainian on my mother's side, it certainly it, it speaks to me. We have resigned ourselves as being a long war, I think. And I, I pray to God that it, it isn't and that events such as today, the grain shipment might indicate some room for negotiation. But I think we, we are kind of accepting the reality this is going to go on indefinitely. Who knows? I mean, wars are impossible to predict. Um, you know, the Ukrainians are mounting a counteroffensive in Kyrgyzstan right now. Maybe they will retake it. Who knows? Arms shipments are continuing. But as Janice said, this is a very, I mean, you think, you think Taiwan's delicate. My God, can you imagine if, if NATO, you know, went even further and started getting involved in the war against Russia and nuclear power? Putin would spin this as NATO's invading Russia. It could end in a very, very bad place. So it'll just like we would talk with Myanmar, sometimes there are really limited choices you can make to make things better. And I, I fear that the war in Ukraine is one of those. Janice, we have uh, very little time left. Uh, I'll give you the last word. 20 seconds, please. This is a long war. It's, it's um, you know, Russia has is a huge strategic loser here when you think what this has done to Russia's future. Um, but Ukraine is also being battered um, in this war. Its economy um, is, is being destroyed. It's almost a quarter of its population have been made refugees. This is unfortunately a war with no end yet in sight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that's all the time we had. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Professor Janice Stein and Phil Gursky. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.